Good morning. It's so good to see all of you. It's a pleasure to be able to be together as usual. And uh, I'm, I'm always excited uh, for our time together, especially on Sunday mornings. It's uh, just a lot of fun to see everyone. A um, quarter is the denomination of a dollar. Uh, a nickel and a penny is a denomination of a dollar. And in the old days, a 50 cent piece was a denomination of a dollar. I miss 50 cent pieces. For almost, I would say, 400 years at least by now, we have thought of churches and religious people have commonly thought of churches as a denomination of what would be referred to in shorthand way as a universal church or a denomination of the Lord's saved people, even among members of uh, churches of Christ, often speak of the church of Christ as a group of churches that can be visibly seen uh, throughout the world. And that's quite common. It is used to be something that was so common that no one even thought about it or recognized the words that they were using. A lot of folks would say, so what? That's not really very significant. I want to suggest to you this morning, and this is what we're going to talk about, how significant this is. It is significant. The concepts that we have often held, the terminology that we have commonly used are ways in which we lead ourselves into full-blown denominational practices. And this still goes on and is present universally all around the world. And uh, unfortunately, oftentimes we don't even recognize what is going on. So this morning we want to talk about that. And, uh, and I'm going to do a number of charts where we can see this as clearly and plainly as possible, along with making some applications as to what is going on even in the present day and how this is being used and is not something that we read about in the scriptures. Let me begin by just giving you some quick reminders. <clears throat> the word church in the Bible, ekklesia, the Greek word, is a non-religious term that can just refer and does just refer to a bunch of people. It may be a bunch of people who've gathered to riot uh, pagans at Ephesus. It may be a bunch of people in the Old Testament who are following Moses. Or it may be a bunch of people who serve uh, any of those things fit the word church. It's not a religious term. Secondly, we use the word universal church accommodatively in a shorthand way to refer to all the people who have ever been saved in Christ, whether dead or alive. Hebrews 12, 23 pretty well uh, uh, explains that and summarizes that when he talks about coming to the assembly or ecclesia or church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Anyone who is enrolled in heaven in God's book is the universal church, just universally referring to everybody who is saved. Obviously, local church is simply a local group of Christians, like at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, Paul addresses the church of God at Corinth. We've talked about these things 
but I realize we always have some new people coming, and I want to make sure these are the terms that we are using and how we're using these terms uh, today. Now, just to set the scene for what uh, often happens, uh, I'm going to give you, we're going to go to a quote by a man named William Banowski. Uh, he was former president of Pepperdine University and uh, was a preacher, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In 1965, he gave this in a particular uh, lecture. He said, the lecturers, he's talking about another uh, incident, the lecturers came to desire a missionary procedure which would more effectively involve the hundreds of small congregations. But they also sought a program whose scope would be more far-reaching than even the best but isolated efforts of any one large congregation. They could not resist the temptation to shop about and contrast their plight with the obvious strong points in denominational machinery. Thus they sought <clears throat> for some practical scriptural means of brotherhood-wide control. So I, I could have grabbed uh, a half a million quotes, frankly, but this is a good one. It's a short quote that indicates what it is like for uh, even Christians to try to set up what would be a denominational type of machinery, and it's even admitted here in this particular quote. Please pay attention specifically. Uh, first, the reasoning behind it. We want to, uh, this, their scope was to be more far-reaching, even the best but isolated efforts of any one large congregation. So the desire to do more than what a one church could do, then we could band together many churches. And then the last statement there, thus they sought from some practical scriptural, and I would say that's an oxymoron. There isn't anything scriptural about brotherhood-wide control. And then, sec and then thirdly, just to refer to brotherhood-wide control is not referring to a brotherhood of believers. It's a brotherhood of churches, which there are no such thing in scripture. That's our premise. That's what we're going to look at. Uh, we will look at how this has come about, even from uh, as early as the second century. Let's start with a simp some simple analogies here, and we will just begin by, by comparing this to simply a link of a chain. So we, uh, I, I'm, I'm an old-time motorcycle rider, and I rode a lot of bikes with chains, and we would carry a link with us in our backpack just in case the chain broke or something, and we had to add a link. Uh, or whatever, and uh, sometimes there would even be links. Well, okay, so when you think of a link of a chain, there is the singular. If you think of individual links, and sometimes we carry two or three links in our backpack, we'd have uh, individual links, you would have two or three links, and they would just be links, or when we tied them all together, we would call that a chain. So you have a singular link, you have uh, individual links, and then you tie the links together and you have a chain. Now you say, well, how does that apply to anything? Well, here's how it applies. Uh, it was read for us, Brian, this morning, read for us Matthew 18, verse 15 through 18. In that particular text, if somebody sins against you, then you are to go to them individually, alone, you are to go to them and speak. There is a Christian then operating and serving Christ by himself or herself. And so you have 
that done alone. But if this person who is sinning does not listen to the individual alone, then he is to bring two or three with him that there might be a, uh, an a, a accountability and that two or three witnesses then would confirm the truth of the sin that is taking place. And so this, in this case, you have two or three Christians operating individually, but they're operating in conjunction with one another, but they are still not a church because the next statement is, if they do not listen to these witnesses, if the sinner does not listen to the one alone or to those who are witnesses, then they are to tell it to the church. And the church is then to speak with them. And if they do not listen to the church, then they are to be, with you, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So you recognize here three different ways that an individual Christian may operate. He or she may operate sing in a singular fashion, doing the things that would be in honor to and allegiance to Christ. All of us here act as individual Christians quite often. We go to our homes, we pray, we study, we sing, even by ourselves. We do things and we help others and we love our neighbor. Those are all things we do as individual Christians. Sometimes we even, two or three of us or more, may join together and do an effort together. We may, two or three of us, study with somebody who is not a Christian. We may, two or three of us, get together and and uh, study the Bible together or pray together. There's lots of things we do just as individual Christians joining together uh, in small groups to do those things. We have small group Bible studies. All of those things are two or three or more individual Christians working conjunctly, uh, joining together in that way. But there is also a sense in which we work together as a church and we do things that God has asked a church to do. We have been doing that this morning, singing and praying and taking the Lord's Supper and studying uh, together and uh, giving together. All those things are part of what we do as a church. And there's more that we do as a church that is outside, obviously, of this building that we operate as a group of people. So you can see those three ways that are clearly outlined in Scripture in this passage, and we could show, of course, many other passages that would show that differentiation. Well, let's go to the next level, though, and talk about this as a church. The Scriptures speak of a church in a singular case. It would be a church at a location, a local church, like we've mentioned, the Church of God at Corinth. There is one church at Corinth at that time. Didn't mean there couldn't have been other churches started if it was need be, but there was one church at Corinth at that particular point in time. And we also speak of, Paul speaks of, a number of churches at a particular district or locale, like when he addresses to the churches of Galatia in the Galatian letter. So here is a group of churches throughout a particular region. Now here is where we get the hiccup. Here is where things tend to change. We do not ever read in the scriptures of a plurality of local churches working together or working or acting collectively. That, that particular kind of organization is not spoken of in scripture. And as a matter of fact, 
that is just exactly the kind of thing that equals a denomination. A group of Christian, a group of churches, not a group of Christians, a group of churches that have collected together and are acting as a unit, sharing resources, etc., that are not that are part of doing a greater work. There is where we have a denomination, and that's exactly what William Bonowski was talking about in his particular quote, as he talked about we need to have a bigger church-wide, brotherhood church-wide control in order to do things that one local church, even one larger local church, could not do. Sounds so good, but let's talk about what actually happens when that is pursued. And now we're going to do just a little history lesson here and get some examples of this error that has taken place way, way back and actually started in the second century. Uh, those of you who do not know too much about church history, and I am dying to do a time when we could get together and just talk church history and uh, do a series on that, but uh, that'll be saved for another time. But in the second century, by the time you get to about 150 A.D., Gnosticism, which was the probably at that time the greatest false teaching that had attacked the church up to that point, was spreading throughout the empire and affecting churches deeply. I won't go into the, meaning, the doctrine of Gnosticism. It denied Jesus as the Son of God and things like that. But at any rate, this became so pervasive that uh, uh, people... Christians obviously got nervous and got worried about this. And so in order to maintain some kind of control, in order to keep churches from falling away, in certain elderships, beginning about 150, you will read historically about a chief bishop or chief elder who would rise up within the elders that were in a local church. And that chief bishop, in order to protect maybe smaller churches around, some, uh, uh, rural churches, things like this, would then take control of a larger group of churches in order to protect them from the doctrine of Gnosticism that would come in and split those churches. These bishops became, over the next century or so, quite powerful. And, and many bishops throughout the empire would take control over groups of churches and would oversee groups of churches in order to protect them from the false teaching. You say, well, that's, that's kind of a good motive, isn't it? It had a good motive in trying to protect these churches and to go into Gnosticism. Yeah, it was a good motive, but it created a bigger false doctrine than the one they were trying to protect those churches against. Because as time went on, the, by 325 A.D., Constantine, the new emperor who uh, rejected the paganism and, and wanted power over the empire, recognized the power of churches and Christians throughout his empire, and he wanted to bring all of his empire in unity to him. So the best way to do that was to get all these Christian churches to have unity among themselves and thus allegiance to a particular goal or a particular group goal. And so he called together 318 bishops throughout the empire, and they created the Nicene Creed. 
You can read the Nicene Creed, and there isn't anything in it I doubt that you will disagree with. Everything was fine. It was emphasis on Jesus as being deity, etc., etc. All of those things were fine, but the problem was throughout this, if you caught what was going on, instead of a local church coming together and studying the Bible and finding out from Scripture that Gnosticism was wrong, a chief bishop came in and said, Thus saith me, Gnosticism is wrong. Was he right about it? Yeah, Gnosticism is wrong. Still is today. And Gnosticism, by the way, is still being taught today and taught in churches today. There's a neo-Gnostic movement as powerful as that went on in the first century, second century. So that still goes on, but you know how you defeat it? Well, what you do is you get a guy who stands up and says, thus saith me, it's wrong. No, that is going to lead to all kinds of other problems. And instead, our faith being in an individual is, is going to be destructive. We need our faith in God through the study of the scriptures. And yes, it's hard work. Christians have to come together, they have to study together, they have to, they have to talk things out and discuss what the differences are, go to the scriptures and come to a scriptural conclusion of things. As you would know, much danger happened that. Once they had one group of bishops get together, then they had seven councils that happened from that up until about the 8th century. And by the time you get to uh, 606 BC, they've not only elected many other chief bishops, but now they have a chief bishop over all congregations, and they called him the Pope. That's where that goes. And it can be in a small way or a big way or whatever, but that's the denominational process that takes place. Now fast forward into uh, the 19th century, beginning of the 1800s, and what you have is Alexander Campbell, who is one of the leaders in a re what has been called a restoration movement to try to get back, get people back to following what Christ and the apostles taught in the first century. Campbell didn't understand this much better in many ways. Here is two quotes from Alexander Campbell. The church, he said, is not one congregation or assembly, but the congregation of Christ composed of Christ, composed of all the individual congregations on earth. So you can see there he has the church, the body of Christ, composed of all the individual churches that are on earth. He goes on to say in another quote, every, every individual church on earth stands to the whole church of Christ as one individual man to one particular church. Again, indicating that the church, universal, is made up of churches on earth. Can you think of who that leaves out right away? Yeah, the dead in Christ, for one, and many other. But right off, you immediately go, well, wait a minute. If I'm dead, hey, whoa, 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 what about me? <laughs> Why am I not in the body of Christ? Why am I not in the church uh, that Jesus uh, brought about and that are the saved? That doesn't, of course, make sense. Campbell coming out of that centuries and centuries of denominational thinking of the church being made up of churches, though, could not at that particular point see past that. By the time you get to 1851, uh, Campbell and others created what was called the American Missionary Society. Again, good, good motives here. We need to get the gospel out to the whole world, and it's really tough for a local church to be able to 
to evangelize the whole world, let's create a brand new organization. Uh, excuse me, Jesus already had an organization, the local church, but let's create a brand new organization. All local churches can send money to that organization, and that organization will send out preachers all over the world, and we can evangelize the world much faster that way. Again, you have created a, a parachurch work and a denominational picture, and you have gone beyond what God has asked us to do. So that, again, continues to show that, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, today, it is commonly practiced this way. One big church decides to plant, I hear that word all the time now, the planting of another church. And absolutely nothing wrong with planting, I don't care what you call it, let's start another congregation over here on the other side, someplace where we need another group of people, and let's start a church over here, that's great, that's fine, but what is going on today is that a local church eldership then oversees the church they planted and continues to oversee that church until the day comes in which that church can appoint its own elders. In the olden days, they made sure they didn't appoint new elders because they were the ones who were going to appoint them and they wanted to maintain, maintain control. I don't hear that happening as much anymore, uh, and, but, but that certainly did happen for reasons we won't talk about in this particular lesson. Another way that happens is when uh, a local church urges other local churches to send us money so that we can do a bigger work than you could do by yourself or we could do by ourselves. And we'll have oversight a part of your money. Again, that's part and parcel of this same process. We'll do this in order to make evangelism, just like the American Missionary Society, make evangelism go further. We'll do this in support, maybe, of an evangelist. I had a preacher uh, come to me one time that was part of this kind of organization. He said, look, do you think your church would, uh, would help support me? Such and such a church is going to sponsor me to go to uh, such and such a town, and I'm going to be evangelist there. They're going to oversee me as I do that. So if you would like to, if your church would like to support me, you send the money from you to the church that's supporting me, and then they'll use those funds and oversee it for supporting me. And I scratched my head and I said, Why don't we just send it straight to you? Oh well, no, no, no. You see, they are the ones who are sponsoring this. The money from your church is supposed to go to their church and then they oversee your money. And said, no, that's not the way we read about in the scriptures. Again, that's not what this is about. And that then has uh, the problem that is, can be concluded from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, where Peter says to shepherd the flock of God which is among you. You don't, as elders, shepherd flocks in other places, you shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And that principle is seen throughout scriptures. Otherwise, what was going on in the second century with the chief bishop rising up and then overseeing many other churches and overseeing them, etc., is again being violated. And that, if that's violated, it's just, you know, let me explain something. We just had the Super Bowl. Wouldn't it be great if your team that lost, wow, wow, so, you know, I'm so sorry you lost. No, I'm not at all. Uh, so your team lost, 
And wouldn't it be great if on one of those plays that the Philadelphia Eagle wide receiver caught the ball but had just his toe barely on that white line that the referee had said, complete pass, close enough. Next play. It's all the way over here. Ah, well, we let that one go. Let's let this one go. Pretty soon the guy's catching it out of bounds and in the stands. Touchdown. You know, you, 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 you cross the line. We don't do that, do we? Not in sports. In politics, we do. In sports, we do not do that because we know the game would end. It would be a disaster because it would just keep incrementally getting worse and worse. So we look at what we saw in the whole Roman Catholic organization, and we say, oh, we got to stop that. But this little crossing of the line, that's not a real big deal. It's a big deal. It's like a lady said to me, young lady said to me when I was teaching a class on this, and she remarked, is this just about money? This isn't about money. It's about creating a denomination. That's what it's about. It's about understanding that there isn't a group of leaders, elders, authorities, or whatever that has control over more or oversees more than a local group of Christians. And once you go past that, you, you absolutely supersede the idea of allowing a local group to read the scriptures and come to the conclusions of what God has asked us to do and go to the point where you have one or two or a few that are controlling groups they're not even in. And then eventually getting cardinals and priests and popes and whatever else, they just don't call them that. That's where it goes. It's not just about money. Which I have to say, I had to bite my tongue because it was quite an irritating statement. <laughs> now, we see universal church. We see local church in the scriptures. Here's what's been added. The human tradition of a group of churches on earth that is designated by a particular name or title. That is what has taken place. Now, let's make a couple of things clear here. Is anything wrong putting a sign out in front of a church building? Certainly not. And there anything wrong with putting something on the sign that describes who we are, people who are following Christ, or certainly have our allegiance to Christ and desire to follow Christ. But human tradition has created this larger group, a collection of churches. And here is what happens. We put a sign out, and somebody concludes that we are, a we are part of a collection of churches. Well, you can't stop all that. I realize that. Doesn't mean the sign's unscriptural. Just means that those are the things that happen. So I had a Bible study, brand, brand new Bible study I'm excited about. We're supposed to continue to study tomorrow, uh, this last Monday, with a young man. And uh, that 
particular subject came up and he said so I assume you guys are Church of Christ because that's what's on the sign and so you are uh, Church of Christ you're part of the Church of Christ denomination I said no um, we are not uh, Church of Christ and we are not uh, part of a Church of Christ denomination we're just a group of Christians he said well, why do you have that on the sign <laughs> I chuckled and I said well church just means a group of Christians it's just talking about a group of people who follow Christ in this case and uh, and and it, it, that's what's on the sign because we follow Christ as it's just a group of Christians following Christ I said if, if if we put out there which I said was per perfectly scriptural but if we put out there the Christians at Woodland Hills meet here would that make it more plain to you and he says oh well that makes sense I could understand that I said well, that's what we are <laughs> there we go so I'm, I'm trying like crazy to try to get him to understand the difference between being part of a Church of Christ denomination I say all that to say that's part and parcel with the way th people think and unfortunately even the way a lot of Christians think let's let's take a look at this from this point of view and here's how I think best to help us understand that uh, here's a fellow named Tim <laughs> He's a Christian, and you know he's a Christian because there is a line connecting him to Christ. He is in fellowship with Christ. If he's in fellowship with Christ, it means he's in what we would term the universal church. He's in the group of saved people. Tim has his allegiance to Christ. He serves Christ every day. He is one who serves Christ, whether in his job or whatever he does. His allegiance is primarily and uh, to Christ at all times and in all the things that he does. Tim also has a friend who is also a Christian, a friend named Don. And uh, Tim and Don, as you can see, their circles overlap there. Tim and Don do things as individual Christians, but they also do some things together. This would be very much like, um, like we would have Paul and Silas, who went on a missionary journey together and worked together. As they are doing that, they're not, Paul and Silas are not a church, but they are two individual Christians that are working together. Well, it just so happens that a fellow named John, I had to have a John here because you know, you have to have somebody that keeps you lively, and our John Romaine is just great in that. He, he always tells the best jokes ever, so I had to have a John in there. Uh, anyway, so we have, have John in here. He keeps the group lively, and John and Tim and Don, they get together and they go, you know, we need to just agree to come together and collectively become a local church and start doing things that a local church uh, would do. We'll We'll come together and we'll worship together. We'll try to teach the lost, but we'll also do a lot of things as individual Christians as well. And so they decide that they will then agree to do the things that a local church would do. They may not agree on everything that the Bible says, but they do agree on what the Bible says that churches do and everything else they're going to keep working on in order to grow to the unity of the faith in the bond of peace, because that's what the New Testament says. We can add to this another church. It will be like the church at Corinth. And in this particular church, there are individuals who are, there is at least one individual we know of in that church that is not saved. You notice the middle circle there is not connected to Christ. So here is a church in which some of the members are connected to Christ. Some of the members are in the universal church, but at least one of the members is not He's a member of the local church, unfortunately, 
They have unscripturally allowed him to stay as a member, even though they recognize the sin that he is in. And Paul urges them not to allow him to be in that local church anymore. But for the present, you have a local church that even has somebody in it that is not saved. It's possible to be in a local church and not be in the universal church, not be saved. We can add to that another example of this in 3 John verses 9 and 10, where we have Diotrephes who's kicked Christians out of the church, excluded them from the fellowship of the local church, even though they are connected to Christ. So here then are certain Christians represented here that are in an area where the only church that they could go to, they have been excluded from, and, uh, but they are still in the universal church. That's not be, they're still saved, even though they're not in a local church at that particular point in time. And then we can add people like Saul and the eunuch who in, in a temporary sense at temporary periods of time, these individuals were not a member of any local church, but were still Christians. They were still in the universal church. They were still connected to Christ. Uh, the eunuch is an example. He's taught by Philip. He, he travels to Ethiopia. He's, in, he's in, uh, in the universal church. He's a saved person, but there is no local church yet. Soon he will teach others, and there will be a local church. But that's not the way it is at the present. And then there are churches even like the church at Sardis. We use other churches in the seven churches of Asia. In chapter 3 of Revelation and verses 1 through 4, where most of the church, Jesus said, you're dead. I would assume from that he's saying you're not saved. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. And he rebukes them and says that they... You know, they will not be counted as his church. And yet, they said, you have a few names in there among you have not soiled your garment. The rest of you need to repent. So we have some in the churches at, at Sardis who are saved and in the universal church, but most of them are not saved and not in the universal church, even though they're in a local church. Quickly seeing the differentiation, aren't we? And then finally, we have the dead in Christ. The dead in Christ are not in any local church, and they used to be when they were alive, but they're not in any local church, and yet they are still in the universal church. They are still part of the saved, which wouldn't work in that whole denominational concept that we talked about. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the universal church. This illustrates the universal church. Everybody whose line connects to Christ whether in a local church or temporarily not in a local church, these are the individuals who are the saved that are written in God's book of life. That's it. However, notice this. If the church is made up of churches, these are the individuals that are left out. You will see saved people let, left out. The few that are in Sardis that had not soiled their name. Uh, the, those who had been excluded from, by Diotrephes in 3 John, Saul and the eunuch when they are not uh, temporarily in, the, in a local church, and certainly the dead in Christ. You ruin the whole thing. <laughs> so this is what happens when you create a denominational concept and understand that the God's church is made up of churches instead of God's church is made up of individuals who are saved. That's what that is. Now, just emphasis here. 
Here's the supposed value of collecting churches together, and here's where we'll conclude. Here's what is so great, though, if we collect churches together. We can have a unity of doctrine and beliefs worldwide. You know the main argument that Jehovah's Witnesses have made every time they've come to my door? Well, you guys, you guys as, and mention a collection of churches, like Churches of Christ or whatever, you guys don't even agree between your churches. We have full agreement. All kingdom halls throughout the world fully agree on the exact same thing, and we teach only the exact same thing, and we never have division. Yeah, I said, that's right, because you follow an organization instead of the scriptures, and you don't work out the scriptures. You ever disagreed with anything with Watchtower in Brooklyn, New York? Admit it. I can give it to you in writing. Yes, you have but you continue to teach what they tell you to teach regardless of what the Bible says. Yeah, you can have somebody or some group that stands up and says everybody has to believe this. That's the same thing the Roman Catholic Church has tried to do. Secondly, the visible unity of churches is going to make a greater impact on the world. Everywhere everybody goes, they're going to know, oh, there it is. There's Church of Christ or there's whatever. And we can have this greater unity, and we can have a greater impact. Well, that's a real nice idea, but again, that is not the way the Lord has asked us to do this. And we make an impact not by that, but by individual Christians teaching others, and by churches, a church being the evangelistic pattern that they ought to be. And then we can make a larger financial impact by pooling our money. Yep, I'm, I'm sure you could uh, do that as well. And then we can have brotherhood control in order to limit false doctrines. That's been attempted many times by Churches of Christ in the form of brotherhood magazines, by the way. Not that a brotherhood magazine, that is a brotherhood of Christians, but not that a magazine can't be printed or published or whatever. I've edited magazines. But when that magazine decides that they're going to try to control a brotherhood of churches and even tell you who's faithful and who's not faithful and what's faithful and not faithful and what doctrine is true and what not doctrine is true, they've overstepped their bounds. This is a group of Christians, a brotherhood of Christians, not a brotherhood of churches, and no organization is in control. And the problem with all four of these things is who are we going to get to a point to be in control of such things? I choose me. <laughs> no, I don't choose me. Shoot me in the head. You see how that'd work out? As soon as we do that, we forget there's only one person that has brotherhood-wide control, to use William Banowski's words. There's only one person that has brotherhood-wide control, and you know who that is. Jesus, our Lord and Savior. He's the only one. And that's who we need to have our allegiance to and no one else. I hope that helps you understand some things and gives us a strong warning about the things that are often done uh, and continue to be done widely throughout lots and lots of churches and even churches of Christ. We're going to sing a song right now, and we would love to help anybody who has needs. If you are not saved 
If you have not come to Christ, if you do not know what you need to do, please talk to us about that. Either step forward and let that be known or talk to me or any of the members here uh, following our worship. As together we stand and sing.